0: Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneur Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg.
1: We are chapter 31. First, Alter Rebbe spends four chapters discussing the importance of joy. How joy is the most essential part of a Jew's life. Jew is always joyful, optimistic, positive-minded. And he describes how a person deals with the challenges of being joyful. The last two chapters that the Rebbe discussed, how does a person deal with apathy, apathy? And you become apathetic and different. And we know, like in a relationship, that's the worst thing. When you're angry at someone and you're upset at them, it means the relationship is alive. But once you become apathetic and indifferent, then it's, it's, it's one step away from, uh, from, God forbid, the worst. Because it's, uh, you don't care anymore. You stop caring. So, and this happens to everyone in your spiritual life you reach a point where you become your heart becomes dull stop caring you have no interest nothing could light your fire nothing could spark you lose that appetite you lose that excitement that enthusiasm that eagerness you want to learn and you, and you want to grow and you want to so how do you deal with that? that's a very difficult thing to deal with and the Rebbe spends two chapters dealing just with that issue the last two chapters chapter 29 and 30 and he says first you have to Get to the root cause of the problem. The root cause of the problem is is egotism, egocentrism. When a person becomes so self-centered and you become arrogant, and therefore you you grow jaded. So the first thing you have to do is you have to break your heart into a thousand pieces. Just like a piece of wood, quotes the Zohar, a piece of wood the fire doesn't take. You have to break the wood into, into small little pieces, and then you can light it on fire. So when your heart is broken to a thousand pieces, when you lose that self-absorption and that smugness and that self-satisfaction and that foolish sense of self-satisfaction, arrogance, then your heart can you can recapture your appetite, regain your appetite to learn, to grow spirituality. And then it continues, once your heart is broken, then, then you can become self-aware because a person who is so proud and arrogant and content with themselves, satisfied, that person is completely, has no self-awareness and becomes very judgmental of other people and holier than thou. But when a person loses his egocentrism and his delusional sense of grandeur, grandiosity, then you can become honestly self-aware of who you really are and what's really going on in your life. And then you realize that you're not so great, even though you may have studied Torah and and all your life and you've done everything, versus that bum, that lowlife who's not doing the right thing. But when you assess yourself honestly, we're not sure who's better or who's worse. Because do you struggle? For you it's no struggle, it's no big deal. It's like feeling superior to the axe murderer. Why do you feel superior to ax murderer? Are you tempted to murder? Is it a struggle for you? It's no big deal. So for you, that the fact that you're not a murderer, is, what's the so what? It's no struggle. It's no big deal. For that axe murderer, it's a, it's a huge struggle. So yeah, if you want to assess yourself honestly, do you struggle in your the areas in your life that you have to struggle? How do you do? You're so quick to condemn and feel so superior. Look, I'm a paragon of virtue. I'm such a good person. I don't steal and I don't cheat. And I don't... Really? Maybe you're not tempted to cheat. It's no big deal for you. You don't get any great kudos. What's the big deal? Habit those areas in your life which is a big deal, which you do have to struggle, the weaknesses in your life that you have to overcome? Look how weak you are. Look how, inc- how inconsequential you are. So, so relax, before you start condemning and feeling so superior and feeling so arrogant and hoody, let's, let's become self-aware of where you're really at in life. And that's enough to, to humble you, that's enough to open your heart, to crush that arrogance, that foolish sense of self-satisfaction and smugness, and that will recapture, re- recapture your appetite, then you can start growing again, open your heart up, to start feeling to start feeling alive again. Start connecting and to start. So here, the Alter spends two chapters, a great length, discussing how you can crush your spirit, crush yourself, crush that sense of arrogance. But that may lead to depression. You know, if you're going to dwell and focus on that, I'm not so great, I'm not so hot, and I'm not so, you know, that can lead to uh, um, an unwanted consequence is that can lead to a sense of, of worthlessness or a sense of depression. Well, that's a terrible thing. Because prior to that, the al spent four chapters discussing how it's essential for a Jew to be joyful. How depression is, is, is a no-no. A person can never, because depression means a sense of worthlessness. If you feel that I'm worthless, then you lose hope. You give up hope. You stop trying. What's the point? And that can lead a person to the worst. Because when a person feels horrible about life and feels horrible about himself, when you feel that there's something wrong with me, that I am no good, not I did something wrong, but I am no good, then you just throw in the towel. Then then you lose energy. What's the point? Why even try? Why why the effort? Why the struggle? I might as well quit while I'm behind. And, And that can lead a person to addiction. That can lead a person to the worst things. Many times the reason for addiction, the reason why people get addicted, whatever they get addicted to is because they feel horrible and miserable and they need something to feel better. A person can't live feeling horrible and miserable. So you need something to soothe your pain. So whatever it is, whether it's alcohol, whatever a person finds to, to soothe that pain, of course, of course it doesn't. It doesn't uh, drowning your sorrows doesn't help because your sorrows are, are, is a good swimmer. <laughs> the more you drown it, it always swims to the surface. You have to you have to dull you have to dull the pain even more. It's it's, a, it's it becomes an addiction, becomes a dead end, an endless endless cycle, a vicious cycle of of pain and, and worse. But but so depression could lead to the worst when a person feels has walks around with a sense of hopelessness, a sense of so question is that if a person will take to heart, what Al-Tarebi has written in the last two chapters, how to crush your sense of arrogance, your sense of smugness, to wipe that smugness off your face, or someone who's so drunk on materialism, to sober them up, to give yourself a little patch in the panim, to slap yourself in the face and sober yourself up and, and start living again, in your heart, and to open your heart up. But that can may lead to depression. It may lead to, if you start dwelling and crushing your spirit, you may crush, crush your, yourself, period. This is what Al Alter is going to address in this chapter, chapter 31.
0: In chapter 29, the Alter Rebbe began to deal with the problem of timtum halev, insensitivity of the heart.
1: Another way to put it is apathy. How do, how do you deal with apathy? When your heart becomes apathetic and indifferent.
0: He quoted the statement of the Zohar, that a body impervious to the light of the soul needs to be crushed. By crushing one's spirit, one crushes the sitra achra of his animal soul, whose arrogance is the cause of timtum halev. In chapters twenty-nine through thirty, the Alter Rebbe described various means of arriving at a feeling of contrition, literally broken-heartedness. For example, reflecting on one's spiritual failings in not waging an adequately strenuous battle against his evil impulse and realizing that one's failure in this area places him on a level lower than that of the lowliest of his fellow Jews, as explained at length in chapter 30. But while these methods may effectively dispel Timtum Halev, they would seem to have an undesirable side effect, depression. Depression. Chapter 31 deals with this problem.
1: The last two chapters is an antidote. is a medicine for the illness of apathy. But medicines have negative side effects. It's not like when you eat food, food is healthy. But neg- medicine has a negative side effect. And sometimes it has a nasty side effect. So the al saying that, yes, it's a medicine, and there could be a negative side effect. he's going to address this now, he's going to say that it's okay. The side effect is not fatal and it's not lethal. It's actually, it's okay. It's, It's beneficial. Go ahead.
0: Even if dwelling long and deeply on the above mentioned matters for an hour or two, to be lowly of spirit and contrite of heart leads one to profound depression, let him not be perturbed.
1: He uses actually two expressions. He says A person has to think long and deeply. Long and deeply. One hour or two hours. To be lowly of spirit and contrite of heart. It's not just a poetic expression. Al-Tarebi is referring to the two themes of the the last two chapters. In the first chapter, Al-Tarebi says that the way to deal with arrogance is to realize that man is really the lowest of all of God's creatures. Because we are the only creatures in the universe that can have a desire, that have self-destructive tendencies. Animals don't self-destruct. When was the last time you met a, a, an animal who over or overdrank, or you know, overdosed? <laughs> Animals don't, and don't suffer from addictions. Only human beings suffer from addictions. Only human beings have self-destructive desires, have the have the ability, or the desire to desire something that's sinful, or something that's wrong and self-destructive. So why are you so boastful? You're so arrogant and boastful and proud of yourself, and so smug and content. Realize who you are. You're the lowest of all of God's creatures. Even the mosquito is ahead of you. It's superior to you. And. In other words, we have a man, because we're the only ones who have freedom of choice, it means we have an ugliness inside of us that no other creature in the universe has. The fact that we can desire things which are wrong and sinful and immoral and unethical and ugly and disgusting and repulsive and self-destructive and unwholesome. Animals are not even capable of desiring something like that. So, so why are we so proud and boastful? Like that, that, that alone is enough to humble you, humble your spirit. Like, and, but that's something, that's a defect that you're born with. It's not something that you've done. That's a defect that you, that you've, that you, you know, you're born with. Then, Al Rebbe adds, that there's another, in the, in the next chapter he says, that if a person really thinks very carefully about his life, if you're really self-aware, honestly self-aware of your life, you realize... Even the person who's perfect, who does the right thing, is a paragon of virtue. But if you look a little closer, you examine it a little closer un- under the microscope, you'll see that the person says a juicy p- bit of lush and harder, a juicy bit of gossip here. Uh, you know, even if it's a slight gossip, it's not an overt, he doesn't walk around bad mouthing other people, but, you know, once in a while he likes to slip, occasionally likes to slip a nice juicy tidbit about the other person. Or you may, you may, s- Tell a subtle lie. So, you know, if you really examine yourself, we're not as perfect as we think we are. You can also we also have things that we do that are wrong and immoral. And that's also enough to break your heart, because here we're so feeling so high and mighty and superior and arrogant and self-complacent and self-satisfied. And when you realize that we're not so virtuous as we think and Uh, We aggrandize our greatness, greatness a little, we exaggerate our greatness a little too much when you put everything into perspective. And especially when you realize that more is expected of you because you're knowledgeable. When the knowledgeable person does something wrong, it's much worse than when the ignoramus does something wrong. So when you realize that, it really humbles your spirit. So we're talking about two different types of meditation. One meditation is an obvious meditation. Hey, I did something wrong. I sinned, I did something wrong. I'm not so perfect as I thought I am. That even one hour is enough is enough to realize that something is not so hot, and it's enough to crush to crush your spirit. But then the the f- point that he made in the first chapter of these two chapters is a little more subtle. To start meditating and realize the position of man in the universe that we have this ugliness inside of us. So we have the potential to be worse than the worst animal. We have these self-destructive tendencies within us, which really puts us on the bottom of the totem pole of all universe. This is a subtle, this is a subtle idea. This is something that takes, it's not an obvious, I didn't do anything wrong, I was born this way. God created me this way, I have freedom of choice. We're the only creature in the universe that has freedom of choice. So in order to feel brokenhearted for that, that takes more effort. That's why he says you have to think for two hours to be able to really grasp that point enough that and to take it to heart that to really affect you and humble you, that you need more time. And that doesn't crush you, but that can, can make you feel low of spirit and therefore will open your heart. So you see how every word in the Alter Rebbe, and that's why he says you have to deepen. You have to, you have to dwell long and then go even deeper to really understand your position. On the above mentioned matters, the two matters that he mentioned above. So he says, even if it leads him to, the pro- to profound depression, don't be perturbed. Continue.
0: True atzfut, depression, derives from the realm of klipat noga, not of holiness.
1: Why does depression derive from the klipat noga? from klipa? Klipa means it doesn't come from holiness. Because where does depression come from? What's depression? Depression is, depression comes from ego. I should be perfect. If I'm not perfect, I feel bad. So spirituality could be the ultimate ego trip. I should be a perfectly spiritual person. When I realize that I'm not so perfect, I feel bad. Why do I feel bad? Do I feel bad because I'm thinking about God? Because I'm not as godly as I should be? Or I feel bad because I'm not as perfect as I should be? I have a certain image of myself and I'm a perfectionist. And I believe that I should be almighty, all mighty, all-powerful and self-controlling. And I should be a paragon of virtue. And I'm, I'm not living up to my expectations. So I feel depressed. I feel sad. So, But where does the sadness come from? Does it bother me that, I, that, I, that I'm not godly, that I'm not acting in the godly way? No, what's bothering me is that I'm not living up to my ego expectations of myself. I should be number one, I should be the best, I should be the strongest, I should be the smartest, I should... So it's really an expression of, the, of depression, it's awful, But nevertheless, it's the good aspect of klip, because what are you depressed of after all? You're not depressed that I'm not as wealthy as I should be, or I'm not as successful as I should be, I'm not as respected as I should be. It bothers you that I'm not as spiritual as I should be. I should be perfectly spiritual, and I should have a perfect mastery over myself. And here I see weakness in myself, so I'm sad, it bothers me. I'm not as perfect as I envision. So yes, it's Kalipa. It's all about ego, but it's, it's, the, it's the good part of ego. It's like a healthy ego, because you want, to, you want to be the best, you want to be spiritual, you want to be good. So you, you're feeling depressed that you're not as spiritual as you would like to be, you're not as... as, as as great as you would like to be. So that's what he calls klipat noga. It's the good part of the klip. But nevertheless, it's klipa. Continue.
0: For concerning the realm of holiness, it is written, strength and gladness are in his place. And likewise, the divine presence abides only in man's joy. And the same joy is required for the study of the halacha. Any depression, then, comes from the realm of klipat noga, except that, if the depression is due to spiritual matters arising from one's realization of his spiritual failings, it stems from the good contained in Klipat Noga. For as mentioned in chapter 1, Klipat Noga contains both good and evil. The evil in Noga is the source of ordinary depression, and the positive element in Noga gives rise to spiritually motivated depression. Yet even the element of good contained in Noga is, after all, klipa.
1: If a person is uh, sad or depressed because he's not mm. as wealthy or is not as successful as he would like to be, that's klipa, that's total, total ego. There's no, there's no good, there's no redeeming factor. But if, if a person feels sad that he's not as spiritual as he should be, is not as uh, intellectual as he should be, or he's not as, as uh, doesn't have the mastery of life as he should be, that's already the good of klipa, but it's not holiness. Because the nature of holiness is joy. Wherever there is God, there is joy. Like God says, within my space, there is joy. That's the nature of godliness. So there's no room for ego or sadness or depression or all there is is godliness. You're not thinking about yourself. When you're God centered, you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking, what can I do for God? So I don't have time to think about myself. There was a the famous. Uh Rabbi Yochanan ben Zake, the leader of the Jewish people during the destruction and, uh, and right after the destruction of the second temple and he lived for 120 years his life he was a reincarnation of Moses he, was, uh, he became a, leader, a Jewish leader and he was 80 and um, he led the Jewish people for 40 years and he single handedly saved the Jewish people from destruction saved the soul of the Jew and on his deathbed, the students found him crying. He was crying. And he says, Rebbe, why are you crying? So he says, because I don't know which path they're going to lead me. After 120 years, I don't know. I'm going to, to hell or I'm going to heaven. And the question is, Rabbi Yechonah ben Zake didn't know which path he's going <laughs> This is the leader of the Jewish people, the holiest Jew, <laughs> reincarnation of Moses, single-handedly saved the Jewish people. He had the whole Talmud were his students. So he doesn't know which path, and he was crying. And the question is, if he didn't know which path, why, did he, why is he crying now? Why didn't he cry for the past 40 years of his life? And Hasidus explains, and the Rebbe spoke about this many times, because, yes, on a conscious level, of course, he knew that consciously he was holy and he was divine his whole life was consumed with Torah and teaching and learning his whole life was immersed in holiness but that's on a conscious level but I don't know where a person is at subconsciously that's one of the points that the made in chapter 29 in a dream when a person is in a dream state it's very revealing you can really reveal where a person is really at A person consciously can be very holy but when your dreams are so far away from holiness that's revealing that the whole thing is a facade. It's an act. It's not the real you. Where are you really at? You're so far away. You're so distant from godliness, from holiness. You have no connection to holiness and godliness. But you're very self-controlling. So consciously, you have a nice facade, a nice veneer. But where are you really at? Your heart is elsewhere. Your mind is elsewhere. And that's, that's exposed in the dream. So he knew, of course he knew consciously he was a Jewish leader. And consciously he was a paragon of virtue. But... He says, let's be honest. Where am I really at? Subconsciously. Where is my heart really at? I don't know. And he started crying. Why is he crying now? Why, isn't, why didn't he cry a year ago, two years ago, the last 40 years? And the answer is, the Rebbe says, because God gives a person a certain amount of days in your life, a certain amount of time and energy, down to the last second. God didn't give a person an extra moment. We're not going to live an extra moment than we need to fulfill whatever our mission is in this world. So He gave us the exact amount of energy we need, exact amount of talent, exact amount of opportunities. So when a person, when a Jew lives with a sense of mission, I have no time to think about myself. I'm busy, I'm on a mission. I'm thinking all day, Rabbi Yochum was thinking all day, what can I do for God? What's my mission in life? What's my purpose? So every waking moment he had, he was dedicated to doing what, he, what needed to be done. He had no time for this self-introspection, for thinking about himself. Where is my soul? Where's not my soul. I'm a soldier. I have work to do. I'm on a mission. I'm God's ambassador. I don't have time for this. But now, at the end of his life, he's on his deathbed. If not now, when? Now is the time to make um, a self-assessment. Now is the time to make, do some real soul-searching. So when he did some honest soul-searching and started assessing himself, where am I really at? He started crying. He says, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know where I'm really at. So when you're connected with God, there's no room for depression because you're not thinking about yourself. You're God-centered. A whole day and a whole night, you're thinking about one thing. What can I do for God? What does God need me for? Why am I here? What's my purpose? How can I help another person? How can I, what can I do for Hashem? So when you're on duty, you have no time to think about yourself, even spiritually spirituality could be the ultimate ego trip. I don't have time to think about myself. I'm busy. I have have something I have to accomplish. So there's no room for depression. There's no room for sadness. When you're in God's presence, there's only joy. So when a person is thinking about himself and becomes sad, that's klipa. That comes from ego. I don't like the way I look. I don't like the way I am, spiritual. I don't like the way I'm... I'm all messed up inside. I, I, don't, it doesn't, I, don't, like the, I don't like where I'm at. And you, and you feel sad. And it depresses you. So that's Klippa. But it's a good Klippa. It's the good part of Klippa. Because you're sad about something spiritual. About something, you're not sad about, you know, I'm not as rich as I would like to be, I'm not as famous as I would like to be, I'm not as successful as I would like to be. You're sad that I'm not learning enough, and I'm not praying enough, and I'm not giving, I'm not kind enough. I'm not, so that, that's, a, that's a good thing. So it's the positive of the Klippa. Yes.
0: Yeah, but we all, we also have like a so and if we're like um, a spark of Hashem. So where does the Yitzhara come from?
1: The Yitzhara, that's the ego. That's the uh, that's the that's the cover up. The Yitzhara, that those are the two souls. We have the spark of Hashem, that's the divine soul, the godly soul, and then we have our bodies, our natural soul, our ego. That's the Sahara. The Eitzahara pulls us downward. The Eitzahara, that's the force of gravity. We're pulled down. with the path of least resistance, fun, pleasure, instant gratification. That's the Eitzahara. The godly soul is, the, is motivated, has a different motivation. The godly soul is God-centered, not ego-centered. The godly soul is thinking about one thing. It's thinking once I get closer to God, it's like a flame. It, it's drawn upwards. It, it, it aspires to become more godly and to become closer to God. And to, and to be absorbed in its source. It wants to lose its identity. You have to force a flame down. The flame will disappear. If you don't force it down, the flame will just disappear and be absorbed in the torch, in its source. So the godly soul is God-centered. It's not thinking about myself. While the are our natural souls, we think we were very ego-centered. We think about ourselves. And that's where the depression comes from. Depression comes from, doesn't come from a godly soul. Godly soul is not depressed comes from your ego. Your ego is depressed. I'm not perfect. I want to be perfect. And if you're not spiritually perfect, you, you become depressed. You feel sad. It's a, it's, it's, the, it's a good depression, but it's
0: a depression nonetheless.
1: Okay, for this reason.
0: For this reason, the Arizal writes that even worry over one's sins is appropriate only during confession, but not during prayer and Torah study. These must be conducted with a joy, deriving exclusively from the realm of holiness as opposed to frivolity and the like.
1: The writes, even, we, we learned this earlier, even if someone has sinned and has what to feel bitter about, there's a time and there's a place. There's a time set aside for confession when you have to do some soul searching and honestly assess your soul and come clean and change. But when you're praying and you're studying, forget about, forget about your past. Forget about your skeletons in the closet. You have to focus on one thing. You have to pray joyfully and you have to study Torah joyfully. Even though you could be the worst sinner. Right now I'm praying. Right now I'm doing something positive. There's a time. There's a time to clean up your mess. There's a time to do... <laughs> to, to do some housekeeping, spiritual housekeeping. But now is not the time, not doing prayer, because it's essential. When you pray, when you're connecting with God, you have to approach God with joy. You can't approach God with with a sour face, depressed. Especially, God is interactive. If you show a sour face, God will show you a sour face. If you're joyful, God will smile. Because God is interactive. We live in an interactive age. God is interactive. What we put is exactly what we get out. Measure for measure. Hashem is interactive. The way we treat others is the way God treats us. We're kind with others, God is kind with us. We're impatient with others, God becomes impatient with us. It's exactly we smile, we're in a good mood, we're cheerful, God is cheerful with us. We're sour and dour and sad and long faced and depressed and angry and bitter and harsh, and that's, that's the way God will look at us. So when you're praying and you're davening, you have to approach God with joy. You can't approach God with a sour face. And then there's a time. There's a time when the rabbi is put. Now is the time for confession. Now, after you finish praying, now, now is the time for confession. I now do a little spiritual um, soul search. Okay, so we're back to the question. So the question is, if a person is going to dwell for an hour or two, or however long it takes until you crush your spirit, until you crush your arrogance, your sense of self, uh, self selfishness and self-centeredness and self-absorption, your sense of of narcissism, your sense of of egocentrism, and um, your sense of complacency, and arrogance, and your haughtiness, and you're going to crush your spirit. Well, the unintended consequences that you may lead to depression. When you realize that you're the ugliest of God's creatures and you're the lowest of God's creatures and that even a mosquito is superior to you. And when you realize that even the axe murderer and the rapist is superior to you even though you never did anything wrong in your life you're a paragon of virtue you come to shul three times a day and you're learning and davening but if you want to honestly assess your life and if you're truly self-aware of where your life is really at, you're lower than that person, especially since you're knowledgeable. Because you don't struggle in your life. There's no struggle in your life. Everything that you do is easy. Every, you're just coasting along. You don't demand of yourself the same thing you demand of the axe murderer. You're so easy to condemn that lowlife and that bum. Yeah, but that lowlife and bum has a heroic struggle to be able to overcome his urge and temptation to murder. Do you? Have to overcome your urges and struggles. So, why, why are you so arrogant and feel so arrogant over that other person? So, when you really start focusing and dwelling on all these points, it may be enough to depress you. You know, here I thought I was on top of the world, and all of a sudden you realize I'm the most I'm a miserable creature. Well, what, whatever. And that can lead to depression, which we just said is no good without the Rebbe continues,
0: okay? Why then should one strive to crush the spirit of Sitra Achra with methods that lead to depression, which itself stems from the Sitra Achra of Noga? Yet this is precisely the method of humbling the Sitra Achra through something of its own species and kind. The Sitra Achra is most effectively attacked by utilizing the good contained within it as a weapon against itself. As our sages expressed it, From the forest itself comes the handle for the axe which fells the forest. And in a similar vein, he encountered one of his own kind.
1: The Talmud says that how do you chop off the trees in the forest? You use a tree because the handle of the axe is made of wood. So you use the tree to cut down the tree. And that's why the Talmud says that it was a vadya. Avadya is the smallest book of prophecy. The Psalms are the longest book of the 24 books in the, in the, in the Torah, in the prophets in the and the writings. And the Avadiah is the smallest of all the prophets. Avadiah was a descendant of Asaph, And in his book of prophecy, his whole entire book, talks about the ultimate downfall of Asaph of the West, of Edom will come. And he himself was a descendant of Esau. So, it's, so the Talmud uses the analogy that you use the handle of the axe to chop off, chop off the forest. It was Avadia who was a descendant of Esau, of Edom, who predicted and prophesied the downfall and the doom of, of the arrogance of the West. And the Talmud says also we find that King David defeated and crushed the Moabites. Because King David himself was a descendant of Ruth, the Moabite. So it takes the handle of the forest, this comes from the forest, and you use a, uh, the handle that comes from the forest to chop down the forest. So it was King David that defeated and crushed the Moabites. And then there's another analogy that Talmud uses. The Talmud discusses that there was a snake. They found a the snake in the, in the house of study. It was on Shabbat. And there was, it was a dangerous, dangerous, poisonous snake. And there was a a person there in the synagogue who killed the snake. And they said that he encountered the snake, encountered one of his own kind. Some say that it was meant as a praise. Some say no. Some say it was meant as an insult. That it took one snake to kill another snake. One dangerous, this person who killed the snake was himself a dangerous person. So it took one dangerous creature to kill another dangerous creature. Others say no, on the contrary. If the rabbis were praising him, that he was a Torah scholar. The snake came and endangered, was chasing after people's lives because he was in the synagogue, the house of study, he could have bitten anyone. So he pursued, it's what we call a pursuer. Someone who pursues a person to kill him, it's called a pursuer. So here the snake came to pursue a human. A human came and pursued the snake and killed the snake first. So this is in praise of the person who killed the snake. So th- this is the idea that he encountered one of his own kind. And it's interesting. There's a, there's a subtle difference between these two analogies. Now the Rebbe brings both analogies. In the case of the handle, you're not chopping the wood, the forest with a handle, you're chopping the forest with a metal blade. It's, it's only that you're using the wood as a handle. So the handle enables you to be able to chop the fires with the blade. So the handle enables you. The second analogy that he brings, that he, counters, he counted one of his own kind, means that literally it's the same kind. That one dangerous creature killed another dangerous creature, or he was a pursuer, the snake came to pursue us, and in turn he was pursued. Why does Al Rebbe use these two analogies? The Rebbe explains because, again, he's referring to the two different meditations, reflections, that he discussed in the previous two chapters. In the first chapter, in chapter 29, he discusses that when a person realizes that we are the only creature in the universe that has freedom of choice, that we were created with evil potential, that we have temptations and desires, unhealthy temptations of the self-destructive temptation size. For that, that alone is enough to crush. Now, did the person do anything wrong? No, he didn't do anything wrong. He just has the potential, the urge, the temptation to do something wrong. So that's what we call a lesser form of evil. It's not, a, it's not an actualized evil. It's just a potential. So that's the, that's the equivalent of the handle. It it's enables or it enables one to chop the forest. It's not similar to the to the forest, because it's the blade that actually chops the wood of the forest. But nevertheless, it's the wood from the forest that enabled you to use the blade to chop off the wood. So when you meditate and reflect on the fact that you have this ugliness inside of you, and that causes you to to crush your spirit, or crush your arrogance. So, you're, not, it's not exact. You're, crushing the, you're crushing the arrogance you're crushing the negativity but you're not crushing it with something that's 100% similar you're crushing it with something that, that's close just like the handle is close to the forest and it causes it, it causes the, the axe to, to, to cut the fire. so too when you crush your arrogance and as a result it helps you avoid sin the meditation you're not thinking about sin You didn't sin. You're just meditating on the fact that I'm tempted to sin. And that's enough to chop down the forest. That's enough to chop down the negativity, to help me avoid from sinning, help me avoid sinning. So it's close enough. It's not identical, but it's close. I'm thinking about the potential for sin, and that's enough to stop me from actually sinning. Then he uses the second analogy. That it takes one to know one. That the, that the person, the snake, met its match. That the snake was stopped by its exact equivalent. He was a chaser, a pursuer, who was about to kill a person. Instead, a person pursued the snake and killed the snake. That's the reflection in the meditation that he taught us in the previous chapter, chapter 30. When a person thinks, and not only do I have the potential to sin, which makes me the ugliest and the lowest of all of God's creatures, But the fact that I actually did, I told a subtle lie, a a subtle, uh, juicy uh, tidbit, Lashon Hara. So if you really are honest about yourself, and you really are able to self-reflect and be self-aware, honestly self-aware, you realize that that, that you actually sin, subtly. So you're using the thing itself to stop you from sinning, because when your spirit is crushed, once again, it opens up your heart. It wets your appetite, and you have a hunger again for spirituality and for godliness. When your hunger, is spirit, when your spirit is humble, that helps you avoid sin. So you're using the sin itself. You're using that to stop you from sinning. You're crushing the snake, the serpent, by using the exact equivalent by meditating and reflecting on your sins and your subtle sins, the negative that you've actually done that's enough to crush your spirit and to stop you from actually sinning. So that's using the equivalent to stop the equivalent. That's why the al uses both, both analogies of the Talmud. So in other words, when you use medicine, when you take <coughs> medicine, the antidote is usually the illness itself, right? When you immunize. How do you immunize someone? You inject the poison. You inject the virus. You inject the illness itself. So if you want to immunize yourself spiritually, yes, it's a medicine, and you don't feed medicine to healthy people. But when you see that your heart is dull, and your heart is insensitive, and you're apathetic, and you stop caring, and you become indifferent, and you lose energy, and you lose enthusiasm, then you need a medicine, you need an antidote. And you know what? The antidote is poison, yes. And you have to feed the poison. But that will, that will immunize you. And that will maintain your health. So it's, it, it's, it's a necessity. Don't feel bad. Yes, maybe as a consequence of crushing your spirit, you'll feel bad, you feel crushed, you may feel a little depressed. But you know what? That's the only way you can do it. Because the only way to trap the forest is by using the forest. You want to stop evil? You have to use a little evil. You have to, you have to use that medicine, that poison you have to use it so yes you're depressed because, because of ego your ego feels bad that I'm not as spiritual enough and I'm not as perfect as I would like to be and your ego feels bad that's fine use your ego to check your ego use your ego to check your arrogance that's health. that's fine that's the way of the world that's the way of the medicine if to use the poison itself to protect yourself so the Alzheimer's says don't feel bad it's okay that's the way that's the way it has to be
0: continue. Of this sadness, resulting from contemplation of one's spiritual state, it is written, in every sadness there will be profit. The profit lies in the joy which follows the sadness, as will be explained later, i.e. in what way the sadness itself leads to joy. In truth, however, the state of being contrite of heart and bitter of soul i.e. remorseful over one's remoteness from God and over the fact that one's soul is clothed in the Sitra Achra. This state can by no means be described in the holy tongue, Hebrew, by the term atzvut. The word atzvut, meaning melancholy, stems from a root which means constricted. In this context, it refers to a numbing depression that constricts one's heart, blocking out all feeling, as the Alter Rebbe continues. For atzvut means that one's heart is as dull as a stone and that there is no vitality, arousal of feeling in his heart. But bitterness, merirut, and contrition are just the opposite, since the very fact that one is moved to be embittered is itself a sign of life. So he's saying
1: that the truth is. Not that what he said earlier is not the truth he said earlier that even if you're depressed it's okay because it's like immunization you have to immunize you have to use the poison itself if you want to chop the forest you have to use the forest itself to chop the forest so you have to use ego to check ego you have to use the snake has to meet its match in order to stop the snake from killing you you have to to meet its match so it's okay if you're depressed if your ego feels depressed, because, and if that will crush your spirit and, and check, check your ego. And then he says, but the truth is that this is not really, there's a big difference between depression and bitterness. So before he wasn't talking about the truth. And the answer is that when a person starts meditating and reflecting on all the points that Alter Rebbe made earlier, That firstly, I was born, the fact that I'm tempted to do something wrong. And especially if I sin throughout my life, and even though I've already corrected it, but I still see that that sin, that negative energy still has a pull on me. And the proof is my heart is dull. That means I haven't truly done shruva. My shruva is not effective today. And the other point that he makes, if you really start thinking deeply, start checking your dreams, you want to see where a person is really at, look at your dream state. Look at where you are, look at what your dreams are all about. Because you can be, you may have a facade on the surface you may be, and you may delude yourself, that you're a paragon of virtue, but your dreams tell the truth, that you're so far from holiness and from godliness, it's so far from your mind that it's, it's, uh, it's sad. So if you really want to really know where, where you're really at. And then if you go deeper and then you realize that, start comparing yourself to, 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 to the other person. There's no struggle in your life. Everything you do is easy or has become second nature. So how could you compare yourself to anyone else? You're worse than anyone else because the other person has struggled, has to struggle. Where you? And Where is you? where, your struggle? And especially if you look into the fact that the subtle sins that we all do and we all commit. So by the time you're done, you will become depressed. It's very depressing. <laughs> but just for a moment. And immediately... It will turn into bitterness. What's the difference between bitterness and depression? No, the difference between bitterness and depression? Imagine your house is burning down. So if you're depressed, you sit down and you start crying. That's depression. Bitterness is, my house is burning down. You grab a bucket of water and you start doing something about it. Depression is, you lock yourself up in your house and you go into a funk and you disappear for a few days. It's a terrible situation, I'm terrible, it's horrible, I am bad. There's something wrong with me. Not I did something wrong. do dis- something wrong with me, it's terrible, it's hopeless, there's nothing I can do to change. And you just, you just do nothing. That's death. There's no energy, there's no life. There's no hope for change. Bitterness is you're bitter about something. You're going to do something about it. You're motivated to do something about it. It bothers me. And I'm bitter about it, so I'm going to do something about it. There's a problem. There's an acute situation. I I better roll up my sleeves and do something. There's energy. There's life. So there's a big difference. Depression is a no-no. Hopelessness. No life. No energy. That's, there's no, that's a no. Yes, if you'll meditate and reflect on all these points that he made in the last two chapters. If you have a momentary depression, there, Rebbe says, it's okay. Because it's an antidote. And you have to use the poison to protect yourself. And that's fine. You have to use the forest the to make the axe, the handle that will chop off the forest. So you have to use ego to check the ego. That's fine. But immediately it will turn into bitterness. If it lingers, if the depression lingers and you live with a sense of hopelessness, that's that's no good. That's no good. But if it leads to bitterness, bitterness is good. Bitterness is energy. Bitterness means you're going to do something about it. When you see injustice, and you get angry and bitter, it means you're going to roll up your sleeve and do something about it. Instead of wringing your hands and and doing nothing and just crying and sitting there and letting your house burn down and not lifting a pinky to do anything about it, that's depression. But bitterness is, you're going to be motivated to do something. And that's a powerful motivation. Never underestimate the power of bitterness. When a person is crushed, and that's what he's going to explain now, when a person, there's two types of energies that a person has, two types of life. Is when everything in life is joyful and pleasurable, and everything is coasting along and relaxed and fun, and that's, and that's, that's good. But then you have, when you you have an unpleasant experience. But it it could be very intense, and very powerful, and very memorable. That experience you probably won't forget. will linger far longer than the pleasant experience. For example, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe sat in prison. In Russia, if you were sat in prison, it was a sign of honor. That means you must have been a moral person, an ethical person, a spiritual person, because all the criminals are running the country. The previous Babajarebi was sentenced to death because he was the pillar of Judaism. He single handedly stood up to Stalin and fought him and, and continued to create underground yeshivot and create Jewish life all over Russia. And they put him in prison and, it was, and he was sentenced to death and they, they tortured him and he suffered the rest of his life from put him in solitary confinement and they threw him down the stairs and, and he, he didn't buckle. He didn't cave. He didn't buckle. One He didn't give one iota. And they slapped him and they beat him. They, they, they went wild. They never had such a prisoner because they all crushed. They all... It was just a matter of time. They all... And the previous Rebbe was the eternal Jew. Nothing can crush him. He says, there's no force in the universe that was created yet that can, that can cause me to compromise my Jewish principles. And, um, and the previous Lababat Rebbe later wrote, he said, that experience changes life. He says, I would never wish it on anyone, and I would never wish it on myself. But once I went through it, I had that experience, I would never take it away. Because the intensity of that experience and the power of that experience, you feel so alive. Imagine a soldier who goes to war was actually in battle you know when you're in live battle the intensity the awareness is so sharp you you live life on a level that that ordinary people like us we never get to live once you tasted that once you've experienced that you know you'll never want anyone to take that away from you because you've lived life on such a deep such an intense level yes it may have been a very horrible experience it may have been a very unpleasant experience very dangerous experience but when you live life on that level, it's so intense, it's very powerful. There's a life to it. There's a very powerful force to it. So when a person has fear, fear is not all negative. When a person has fear, as a matter of fact, it's, it's a critical ingredient in life. It's what we call stage fright. Every successful person has to have a little, a little fear in his life. You know... Ronald Reagan was one of the greatest speakers, says he still gets butterflies in his stomach. Even though he's been speaking all his life. And the moment you stop getting butterflies in your stomach, then it's time to stop speaking. It's time to switch careers. Because it keeps you grounded, it keeps you honest, it keeps you you real. So fear is not it's an energy, it's a powerful energy. It's an intense energy. So there are two types of energies in life. There's a chesed energy, a love, pleasant smooth energy, and then there's another type of energy, fear, but it's intense, it's powerful, and it's very deep. So this bitterness that we're discussing is not all negative, matter of fact it's very powerful, very effective, it's very effective, it motivates you like nothing else. When a person is worried that he may not pass the test or, or he's going to lose his job or he's gonna, and that focuses him like nothing else and concentrates him like nothing else, that's powerful. That's such a powerful motivation versus a person who's just motivated because it's pleasant and he does it well and everything is well and everything is smooth. In a way, you can't even compare. The intensity and the power, the drive. A person who's motivated by fear sometimes has a much more powerful drive than a person who's motivated by love. and and You can't compare the two. So, So bitterness is healthy, it's good. When you're feeling bitter, you're feeling motivated. You're feeling alive. You feel more alive sometimes through bitterness than you feel through love and sweetness and light. So he says, when you're dealing with the Yetzirah, when you want to deal with the Yetzirah, the only way to deal with the ego, the language that the ego understands, the ego relates more to that life and that energy that comes from fear, or that comes from, from, from bitterness. That hits home much more powerfully many times than the, than the energy that comes when everything is sweet and everything is close to home. So he says, he can't even call it depression. It's not depression. It's bitterness. And there's a life there, a very powerful life force, and very effective. You know, there are many students that you can reach through love and sweetness and honey, but, you know, not all students respond to sweetness and honey. A little fear of God. Which teacher do you remember most? The teacher who was loving and kind, or the teacher who drove you crazy? who pushed you to your limits who you were so frustrated but kept them pushing you and demanding and, and really you were, you were afraid, it made you uncomfortable which teacher left a lasting impression on you, the teacher who made you feel comfortable or the teacher who made you feel uncomfortable honestly it's the teacher who made you feel uncomfortable he really got to your kishkes he really pushed you to excellence he really caused you to shine and to excel and to really expand and stretch and and, you know, utilize all, all the faculties that God gave you. So, so Dalt Rebbe says, this is a healthy thing. This bitterness that we're talking about is it's not negative. It's not depression. It's effective,
0: it's powerful, and it's necessary. Except that this vitality derives from the holy attributes of severity, rot, and it therefore expresses itself as bitterness, whereas joy derives from the holy attributes of kindness, Chassadim, for the heart, contains both these attributes, kindness and severity.
1: In holiness, there are two types of life. They're both life, and they're both vital. One is loving, a life that's expressed through love and joy and, and sweetness and, and sugar and the light and beauty. And then there's, there's a, a life that's intense, that's powerful, that's strong. And yes, maybe it makes us feel uncomfortable, but the truth is, it's, it's, it's a very strong vitality, it's a very strong, strong life force. So, this energy comes from, is rooted in the holy energy of Gevura, of strength. It's a powerful energy, it's an intense energy, it's a focused energy, and
0: it's, it's okay.
1: Okay, continue.
0: At any rate, we see that the dejection accompanying one's disappointment with his spiritual situation, stems from the realm of holiness, unlike Atsvut which derives from klipat At times, one must arouse the holy attributes of severity, gvurot, in order to temper, literally sweeten, stern judgments, which in this context denote the animal soul and the evil inclination, whenever it, the latter, dominates a man, God forbid. For stern judgments, i.e. restraints on one's spiritual well-being, can only be sweetened by means of their source. So
1: everything in the physical world is really a symptom of the spiritual world. So the ego is a very powerful energy, very intense energy. The ego attractions are very powerful. The godly attractions are more subtle. (laughs) Your whispering voice of conscience. But the ego attraction is like a bull in a china shop. You know, when you want something and you want it, you know the American prayer, God, give me patience and give it to me now. You know, that's, when you want something, you want it. To, <laughs> like a bull, bull in a china shop. So where, where does this come from? It's rooted in the powerful vitality of holiness, the gvura, which is an intense energy, a powerful energy. So if you want to reach the ego, you want to transform the ego, you want the ego also to harness that energy into holiness. That even the ego should start wanting and yearning for godliness. The energy through bitterness is much more effective. Hits home a lot more than the energy that comes from love. Because the energy that comes from love only touches our godly soul. Our <laughs> ego soul can't relate to it. It's too abstract. It's too otherworldly. It's too holy. It's too sweet. It's too good. It's too. It's not, you can't relate to it. But when you hit home, you know, when you hit in, 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 say in Yiddish and when you hit the hits the kishkes, when you really hit home, that's something that you feel bitter and you feel upset and you feel that's a powerful life force, powerful energy, a powerful motivator. That wakes you up, that grabs you, that really grabs your attention and gets to you. And that has the ability to transform and harness that ego energy into holiness. And if you want to sweeten, the judgment, you could only sweeten it at the source. Because when a person is judged, God forbid, in this world, everything that happens in the physical is a, is a result of the spiritual. It's because spiritually, our ego is, is, is running amok. Our ego is running loose. Our ego is not in touch with its source. So if you want to change the Din, if you want to change the judgment, the physical judgment, you have to change the spiritual judgment. If you could transform your ego and harness that energy and reconnect that powerful ego energy to its root, to its source, and, and channel it towards holiness, if you can accomplish that, then the physical judgment will also be sweetened and will also be transformed. From negative, everything will be transformed into positive. So when you transform the negative into positive, it's so much more powerful than that which is originally sweet. When something is original, it's like a difference between sugar and honey. Sugar is sweet. It's all sweet. Honey has the ability to take something sharp and transform it into sweet. When you take something sharp and transform it into sweet, it's much more powerful. It's like a difference between a person who's born kind. It's the kind nature, gentle by nature, kind by nature. Or take a person who's born nasty by nature, but worked on themselves and transformed their nature into sweetness. You can't compare the two. That person is so much deeper. It's so much richer. That kindness, that goodness is so much deeper because he's transformed the negative into positive. So it's one thing when something is born sweet. The godly soul is sweet. It always is sweet, always was, and always will be. But when you take the harsh, rough, raw ego and you transform it into something sweet. It's so much more powerful. It's so much more intense. It's so much more satisfying. It's so much richer. So if you can transform the din spiritually in yourself, transform your ego nature, that not only you should do the right thing, but should even want to do the right thing, then the physical judgments against us will also be sweetened and transformed. And how do you transform your ego nature? So through bitterness bitterness is much more vital, has a vitality to it, has a power to it, has an intensity to it that you don't find in, in in love per se. So it's okay, it's holy, it's good. It comes from a good root, it comes from a good source, and it's necessary if you really want to reach the ego, the real you. Because it's only when a person feels unsettled inside, when you feel unsettled and you feel... That you're looking, you're seeking, you're searching. Then you're open. Then your ego becomes open to grow and to change. Otherwise, your ego is out of the picture. It's indifferent. Your godly soul is galloping ahead, but your ego soul is, is left behind. Either you're suppressing it or you're ignoring it, but you're left behind. So you don't have a real hunger for godliness. It's not the real you. How could, you ev- how could you arouse within yourself a real sense of hunger and thirst and, and yearning and sense of restlessness? You have to reach the ego. And that's, and that's like a good teacher. A good teacher doesn't just teach a student information, a lot of good information. The good teacher evokes within a student a hunger, gets them hungry for turns them into students, real students. That they should hunger for knowledge and information as if their life depended on it. That even when they finish school, they'll be, they'll be reading at night, they'll be looking and reading and searching and seeking and thinking, and it, it'll get to them. It's not just external, superficial, stuffing them with a lot of interesting knowledge and information. It's turning them into, into students, into into hungry, hungry souls that, that are looking and uh, searching. When he starts questioning and, he, and it starts bothering him, so that in order to reach the ego, that the ego should start hungering for godliness. The ego should start yearning for godliness. The ego should become curious and intrigued. That you could only achieve through bitterness. You can't achieve it through love. The ego doesn't respond to love. It doesn't know what you're talking about. It's not his language. Ego is harsh, rough, intense, powerful. But when you feel bitter about your situation, and there's life, and there's vitality, and there's energy in that bitterness, now you're hitting home. Now the ego feels, wait a minute, you know, I, I feel that I'm, something is wrong in my life. It's not perfect, it's not good. And then you can transform your ego. The ego starts hungering for something Then you can start educating your ego. You can start opening up your eyes and realizing that there's a lot more to life than just money, power, fame, indulgence, external material. But when your ego starts getting it, then your ego starts hungering for godliness. That's how you transform. That's how you sweeten the judgment. When the judgment itself becomes transformed, because you've connected it to its root, to its source, its divine root, its divine source. I now, mean, if, you, if you achieve that spiritually, you will also achieve that materially. Then all your judgments against you materially will also be sweetened and transformed from negative to positive. The material will follow the spiritual. Okay.
0: All evil is simply a degenerate form of the attribute of severity, gavurot that derives from the realm of holiness. Myriad contractions, tzimtzumim, and descents of this attribute transform it to evil, the evil of klipa. Naturally, this includes also the citra achra of one's animal soul and his evil impulse. In order to elevate or sweeten evil, to return evil to the realm of holiness, it is necessary to bring its source to bear on it. In terms of one's divine service, this means crushing one's evil impulse by rut bitter remorse which derives its vitality from the holy attribute of severity, the source of the evil impulse. For this reason, our sages said, one should always incite the good inclination to anger against the evil inclination. Since anger stems from the attribute of severity, it is capable of sweetening the evil inclination.
1: That's why it doesn't say in the Torah, "Don't thou shalt not be angry, because anger, could be utilized for something very positive you know if your teacher got angry at you you'd feel very upset but it would wake you up so the Talmud says you should get angry at yourself when you see that you're sleeping on the job and you're falling asleep spiritually and you see that you're slacking off so you should get angry at yourself get angry at your ego at your yetzahara, insult yourself a little wake yourself up and that's very effective and very powerful it really hits home really gets to you,
0: in a real way. And that's positive, that's good. Continue. The word always, one should always incite, is however to be understood in a qualified sense. Joy, not severity, is usually the proper setting for divine service. Thus when our sages stated that one should always incite the good inclination, this means whenever he finds it necessary for himself. As for example, when one sees that the arrogance of his animal soul does not permit the light of his divine soul to penetrate his heart, causing timtum halev. However, the appropriate time for this anger of the divine soul at the animal soul, meaning, the time which is opportune and fitting for most people, is when one is in any case depressed over mundane matters, or just so, without any discernible cause. So he's
1: saying it doesn't mean that a person should always be angry and always arouse anger at yourself and get angry at yourself and yell at yourself, yell at your ego. Um, he means when, you, when it's necessary, when you see that your heart is dull, when you become apathetic and you lose interest and you're sluggish, then you need something to awaken yourself up. You need a, a shot in the arm. So then you need that vitality and that bitterness, which has tremendous energy in it, then you should um, um, yell at yourself but even then you should only do it at the appropriate time what's considered the appropriate time? so he says the appropriate time is when a person is anyway when you have the blues inexplicably we all have our mood changes there are times when you just feel elated and joyful and there are times when you just feel down blues sad you can't explain it we don't understand our moods or our mood swings it's just human nature everyone has their highs and everyone has their lows so when you're feeling low anyway that's the perfect time to reflect on all of these points that he made in chapter 29 and 30 and to crush your spirit and to evoke a sense of bitterness and and life and vitality why? because your frame of mind is very critical because if you're anyway in a sad mood, then it's easier to evoke, to feel sad. Not to feel sad about nothing. I just feel blues. You know, the Monday blues. <laughs> you feel sad about something meaningful. If you're ready in a sad mood, now is a perfect time to start doing some soul searching and 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 uh, assess yourself honestly and, and uh, be self-aware and reflect and meditate on all these points. Because... When you're in a joyful mood and suddenly you're going to start meditating about all these negative things, it's not going to work. I'm in a joyful mood. I'm in a jolly mood. I'm in a great mood. I just woke up. I feel great. And all of a sudden you're going to start thinking, well, how how ugly and disgusting. And you're going to get angry. It's not going to work. Just like the Torah says, that an yantif, it's a mitzvah, a person on a holiday, a person has to drink wine on a holiday. You have to eat meat, you have to drink wine. Why? Because since the Torah says you have to be joyful, so in, to enable you to be joyful, you have to put yourself in a joyful mood. You dress up beautifully, you drink wine, you have a delicious meal. So when you're in a joyful mood, it's easier to accomplish the mitzvah-filling joy. So a person needs something to enable you. You need all these external external things. are very helpful. If you're anyway in a joyful mood, Then it's easier when your body is joyful, you're dressed up so beautifully, you have a beautiful table, delicious food, your body feels joyful, then it's easier for your soul to fulfill the mitzvah and to feel joyful because it's a holiday. And vice versa. What he's saying here is, when a person is anyway, you feel sad. Inexplicably, you feel sad. That's the perfect time to dwell and focus and crush your arrogance and crush your sense of self-complacency. And your narcissism and your self-aggrandizement and your delusions and really wake yourself up to reality and wake yourself up and feel alive again and, and regain your appetite and whet your appetite for spirituality, for godliness. That's the perfect time. So if you see that your heart is dull and you're feeling blue anyway, perfect. Now is the time. Take an hour or two and really get into it until you really feel that bitterness, that sense of, i better do something and i better move and change
0: this is an opportune time for redirecting the depression towards spiritual matters to be among the masters of accounts mentioned above i.e. to engage in soul searching and spiritual stocktaking and to fulfill the previously mentioned teaching of our sages that one should always incite his good inclination against his evil inclination since both of these paths harness the attribute of severity he will thus be rid of the depression brought on by mundane matters i.e redirecting his depression into soul searching and into anger at his evil inclination will dispel the mundane depression
1: well this leads us to a very fascinating point because the Torah tells us elsewhere why is it that a person has these inexplicable sad moods suddenly, out of the blue? When you have these funks or these sad moods, or when a person feels, suddenly you feel bad or something, it's because in heaven at that time you are being judged. And even though we don't know it consciously, but subconsciously we feel it, we sense it. That in heaven we're under the microscope. <laughs> we are in the docket, and they're discussing us. <laughs> and that's why we feel a little tense, nervous, we feel sad, we, feel we don't feel right. And therefore, if a person will take that opportunity to do a little self-soul-searching, that's the best antidote. Because as the Zohar says, when you confesses, it's the best antidote because when they judge you in heaven and you come clean and you outdo yourself you say I've sinned and I'm terrible you imagine you came to court and, and you immediately confessed I did this and this or imagine someone is criticizing you you know the best way to, to disarm them is someone is really critical of you the best way to disarm them is start criticizing yourself and out, outdo your critic and you'll see magically <laughs> the tables will turn Person will say, "Well, it's not so terrible," and you say, "No, it's inexcusable. It's no, uh, there's no excuse." And the more you condemn yourself, and the more you you the, the person will you'll turn around the situation 180 degrees. Because if, if you are if you come clean and you confess, like we have now, the governor of New York he's confessing all his every silly evidence. He's coming up front and I'm saying, "It's almost guys." <laughs> In front of us, the car. Dominic Carter. Dominic Carter. So it's just almost funny, but, you know, but if you get ahead, you, you, yeah, you- right, right, get, ahead. get ahead and you confess. So how can you be angry at a person? The person comes and says, I did this, I did that. I said, okay, fine, you know, we're all human. All of a sudden, we're all of a sudden defending him. You know, it's like, okay, it's all right. When a person denies, the person pleads not guilty. Forget about it. The wrath of the court will fall on you, and you'll, you know. So the same thing is in heaven. If a person comes to God and says, "I'm terrible," I all of a sudden in heaven, oh, not so bad. It's okay. So if a person judges himself, then in heaven they're very kind. So if you utilize this negative mood to start to crush your arrogance and your foolish arrogance. So then, all of a sudden, the judgment will be sweetened. The judgment will be sweetened. The judgment will go away. And therefore, you won't have any reason to be sad. You're sad because you're being judged. Something negative might happen to you. Like that Rizal says, if a person cries, suddenly you feel an urge to cry during the ten days of Teshuvah because you're being judged at that moment. And if you cry, you sweeten, you sweeten all judgments. Because if you have a broken heart and you're crying and Hashem sees it, you're sincere and all judgments are sweet because a person who's condemning himself a person who's coming as it says a broken heart even God's attribute of severity of justice also has mercy because there's no conflict with mercy justice has a conflict with kindness it's like the prosecutor has an argument with a lawyer, with the advocate two opposite sides of the coin and they they can't reconcile he sees the cup, the, the advocate sees the cup as half full. They're both right, they're not wrong, but each one emphasizes and highlights a different aspect of the truth. The advocate sees the cup that's half full, and the, uh, the prosecutor emphasizes the half that's empty. But there's no conflict when it comes to mercy. What does mercy say? You're right, the guy is a, bum, a low life. he did something horrible. He's guilty, he deserves to be punished. But have Rahmans. he's human. Look at his background. Look where he came from. Have There's no argument. The judge says, you're right. He deserves to be punished. He did this harm. You're right. He's human. Compassion. There's no argument against compassion. So when the person is judged in heaven and he cries and he says, and he takes, he takes the initiative, grabs the bull by the horn, and, and he starts judging himself instead, then even the Hashem's attribute of, sentence, of of severity, of judgment, turns into a broken heart. Have rechmanes. Free. So if a person, that's what he's saying, when a person will utilize that opportunity, when you're sad anyway, and especially when it's inexplicable, what does that mean? Where does the sadness come from? Because there's something going on in heaven at that time. So this is the perfect opportunity. this is the opportunity to... And then if you'll do that, then you'll get rid of the depression because firstly you're utilizing the energy for something positive. And also, even the cause of the depression will also go away because everything will be sweetened. Just like your subconscious felt that there was a, a, a judgment in heaven against you, or they were about to judge you, when that judgment will be removed in heaven, suddenly you'll feel relaxed also. Suddenly you feel like, like a, a, a load off your chest. Because inexplicably, but you feel that heaven, everything, everything is good, it's okay. So this is a a, a tremendous advice that the Rebbe is giving us. And next week we're going to learn how this bitterness will ultimately lead to a tremendous joy. Tremendous level of joy. That we'll get to next week.